Namaste. So this is the fourth and concluding part of uh, Collected Works of Shirobindo, Volume Twenty, which is the Renaissance in India. And today we'll take up that penultimate question, which Shirobindo takes up in this wonderful book, as to what really is Hinduism, what really is Sanatan Dharma. And very often we'll hear these questions because normally when we talk about religion, we hear about certain dogmas, certain do's and don'ts, um, certain papal head, somebody who is the uh, head of the whole movement. Uh, we hear about one particular sacred book, one particular figure, but none of these things, some obligatory rituals, none of these things are there in Hinduism. And yet we cannot just say that Hinduism means you do anything, whatever way you want to lead your life. That's not it. So what really is Hinduism? And Shurabindo raises this question very beautifully and powerfully. He says, Just here is the first baffling difficulty over which the European mind stumbles. For it finds itself unable to make out what Hindu religion is. Where it asks is the soul. Where is its mind and fixed thought? Where is the form of its body? How can there be a religion which has no rigid dogmas? I mean, there are plenty of things, but some do it, some don't do it. It's not obligatory. Um, in different parts of India, you will see that there are different ways uh, people you know, celebrate. Like if you go to certain areas in Konkan, you will see now with Diwali, Narkasur Vad is uh, celebrated more than Ravana Vad. So you will see that if you go to these western parts in the western ghats, um, there will be Narkasur pictures and you know effigies and they will be burnt, which I am sure many of us have never seen. In the northern parts you will see Ravanbad. If you go still further down south you may not see either. And they are all you know Hindus, uh, very staunch, very Vedic oriented Hindus. So it asks that what really is this where there is nothing like a fixed Dogma, rigid dogma, demanding belief on pain of eternal damnation. No theological postulates. So it wants, you know, theological postulates are like, you know, um, love this person, do this, don't do this, based on certain understanding of the uh, laws that if you if you commit a sin you will forever rot in hell. Now, this is a theological postulate. So, these things are not there. If you pray to God, you will be granted a seat in heaven. None of this is there. Even no fixed theology, no credo, distinguishing it from antagonistic or rival religions. No fixed theology. If you read the Shiva Puran and the Vishnu Puran, you will see a different understanding even of the way creation has come into being. If you read the Devi Bhagavad, you will see another dimension altogether. So, how can there be a religion which has no papal head? Papal head is like, you know, you have the Pope in uh, Christianity or in um, uh, in Islam, you have um, the head of the, that's how the Khilafat movement had started, the, the chief of the whole Islamic kingdom. So, there is nothing like Khalifa. So you don't have anything like that. So Pandits are there, but Mandaleshwars are there, but they are not head. They don't decide what is to be done and what is not to be done and people don't follow. So they can have their own little influence over their own little people. 
Even the four Shankaracharyas don't decide that what is to be followed by all. So there is no papal head. How can there be a religion in which, which has no papal head, no governing ecclesiastic body, no church? There is nothing like somebody will condemn you or throw you out. There is no church like that. Chapel or congregational system. In fact, if you see, temples have come much later. If you go to the Vedic uh, period, there are no temples. You don't document, you know. Even the gods are very different. So temples have come later, primarily with the coming of tantras. So, how can there be a body like that? No binding religious form of any kind obligatory on all its adherents. Even the Sandhya, Vandana and the five times was primarily meant for the Brahmins who were to wear a sacred thread and pursue all this. It was not binding on all the Hindus. For the Hindu priests are mere ceremonial officiants without any ecclesiastical authority or disciplinary powers and the Pandits are mere interpretations of the Sastra, not the lawgivers of the religion or its rulers. How again can Hinduism be called a religion when it admits all beliefs, allowing even the kind of high-reaching atheism and agnosticism. So he's talking of a high-reaching atheism, not like atheism which without examining just casually says there is no God. But when you examine, when you look at, for instance, typical example is Buddhism. Buddhism is a high-reaching atheism. If you look at it really, it doesn't believe really in God. But it says there is suffering and there must be a way out of suffering. It gives you a path, the dharma, through which you can come out of suffering. There is an eightfold path, there is a process, there is a way. But it doesn't believe in, you know, that there is a God, that, that way it is regarded as a atheistic religion, anatma. That's why it's called as avedic. So, you know, there are religions like that. So he's using the word high reaching atheism and agnosticism and permits all possible spiritual experiences, all kinds of religious adventures. So how can you call uh, such a um, wide variety of things which are combined under a single roof as a religion? But this is actually the strength of what we know today is Hinduism. The reason why it has survived all the various, because there were so many branches and lines through which it could find a route in which it could integrate whatever came within its fold and create something new. So that is the great strength of Hinduism. But then he raises this question that, but after all, what is Hinduism? What does it teach? What does it practice? What are its common factors? So now here Sri gives us three main things which are important for all of us to remember. What really is the Hindu teaching? So first is of course, Ekamevdityam. There is one existence without a second. So all existences contain, carry something of that one existence. The source this is the first teaching of Hinduism. Second teaching is that you can arrive at it through multiple paths. Because it is in everything and everywhere. You can arrive him through a deity. So there are countless gods. Each god represents a certain kind of power, certain aspect of the one deity. So you can arrive through that. Or you can arrive even through, you can arrive through a human representative, a guru. You can arrive at him by reading a book. You can arrive at him through absolutely novel paths. Hinduism allows that. So it's not that there have to be fixed path. You can even create a new path which branches out of the main tributary and leads to that. And we, we know experiments like that have taken place in Hindu thought. That's how new 
cult sects came into existence but hinduism is not a cult or a sect but it allows the emergence of many cults and sects precisely because of this uh, focus on the one existence without a second find him by whatever way it doesn't matter so you may believe that you know doing a certain breathing technique will lead you to self find you may believe sitting in meditation or you may believe that you know remembering the divine at all times you may believe that simply contemplating and by uh, trying to use your intelligence turned upward inward towards some great truth in pursuit of that you by whatever means prayer worship meditation living a life which is beautiful and noble it doesn't even care to define god so you can simply say god is truth god is love god is, god is beauty all these various ways you can approach and shubhendu says that uh, this very beautifully to discover and closely approach and enter into whatever kind or degree of unity with the permanent permanent is the way buddhists uh, buddha called him the this infinite the way we see it in the upanishads uh, this eternal is the highest height and last efforts of its spiritual experience this is the first universal credo follow this great spiritual aim by one of the thousand paths recognized in india or even any new path which branches off from them and you are at the core of the religion for its second basic idea is the manifold way of man's approach to the eternal and infinite so that's why you see it's something very interesting you will find in um hindu religion when we have grown up also you know if you go to a mosque you don't believe tumhara dharm bhrasht ho gaya you don't believe that you know oh now you know you have spoiled your religion if you go to a church you don't feel that you know you have deviated from your religion but it's very difficult for certain religions to do that because there are fixed dogmas you can't do that but we can hear we can hear for instance uh, sufi kalams and where it's all about you know they speak about allah and uh, but we feel that bhava inside this sufi kalam where somebody is uh, praying to the divine in his own way and we enjoy it because it can whatever way that psychic emotion we know how to feel it and where we feel it we are fine with it but it's very difficult in certain approaches to god which are very limited and rigid and this is one of the challenges that hinduism has always uh, faced because while it accepts and integrates all that comes into it so it takes for instance when christianity came it took okay this is one of the paths <laughs> so it is wonderful uh, even when islam came okay this is one of the paths it teaches you know universal brotherhood okay vasudev kutumba so we always have but when our religion becomes exclusive then becomes a problem because integrating it integrating anything is not just one way process unless you finish it which is not the way of hinduism so when the other person tries to finish it then the problem comes so hinduism accepts all these an infinite conscious force executive energy will or law maya prakriti shakti or karma is behind all happenings whether to us they seem good or bad acceptable or inacceptable fortunate or adverse the infinite creates and is brahma it preserves and is vishnu it destroys or takes to itself and is rudra or shiva the supreme energy beneficent in upholding and protection is or else formulates itself as the mother of the worlds lakshmi or durga or chandi or kali 
the one Godhead manifests himself in the form of his qualities in various names and Godheads. So this is the second beautiful aspect of Hinduism. And the third is Hinduism believed in what today in modern physics we may well are, um, will end up discovering that this material frame is not the only world. So it believed in a many tired universe. This knowledge is there in other traditions also. It's there in ancient Islam if you Read it, they talk about the seven, you know, Asman. They, in Christianity it is there in theology, you have the gods and the titans. But it never got developed and it was drowned under the very dogmatic, rigid form which appeared later on. And that was because it didn't allow an evolutionary impulsion. Whereas in Hinduism, there is this evolutionary impulsion. So always there is scope of fresh revelations. New masters will come, they will find a new way. And we accept it, ki it's okay. I mean, not that everybody has to go to every master, but somebody who has a following is perfectly fine. So this impulsion of that eternal and infinite can be explored in many ways, new ways. This is something ill-built within Hinduism. And there are many planes of existence and therefore we understand the impact of many of these forces which act upon our life and how we can come in contact with them is native to Hindu thought. And the third idea of strongest consequence is the base of Indian religion is the most dynamic for the inner spiritual life. It is this that while the supreme or the divine can be approached through a universal consciousness and by piercing through all inner and outer nature, that or he can be met by each individual soul in itself, in its own spiritual part, because there is something in it that is intimately one or at least intimately related with the one divine existence. The essence of Indian religion is to aim at so growing and so living that we can grow out of the ignorance which veils the self-knowledge from our mind and life and become aware of the divinity within us. So this is the most third most important thing. We know that how Swami Vivekananda started with this very third thing in Chicago address that I am proud to belong to a religion and come from a land where we believe that God dwells within man. This is a very fantastic teaching, though we have grown up in it, so we may not understand what it really means. But it means that he is in man. And anyone, anywhere in the world can contact him, even if he has no idea about any religion. All that is needed is this sudden urge, this aspiration, this seeking, the seeking, this thirst can take any form. Is there a truth behind appearances? And if he goes like that, he will discover it. We have spoken about this experience of Nishtha, uh, Nishtha Wilson, Woodrow Wilson's daughter. She was just 15, sitting in, or she was lying down in that garden in one of the places in US. And suddenly she felt uh, that nature is so beautiful. I wish God could enjoy all this the way I am enjoying it. Because the idea was of God who is up above in heaven. And suddenly she felt all the joy rushing from every side and entering into her. And it was her first contact that no, he indeed is present in nature. In everything and everywhere. So from this has come the diverse practices of Indian thought. That everything has become sacred. Why? Because God is imminent in everything. So you can pick up a stone and worship and you can realize God. You can pray to a river, you can pray to the sun, 
you can pray to the stars you can pray to the moon you can pray to trees you can pray to different rivers everything can become an object of worship from birth to death everything is sacred in hindu thought precisely because of this idea that god is in everything whereas there are as you know in comparison certain religions which deny the existence of god in everything so this everything has been carried to what extent indian religion believes that music art painting poetry sculpture architecture science technology everything can becomes a means to discover god and to manifest him so if you go to any of these sciences art sculpture or architecture you will see that it is a kind of worship to the eternal or an expression of the eternal this is dance so all this because we believe that the divine is the source of everything he is the inspiration behind everything and all this nature and creation is nothing else but his leela his expression his manifestation and we can participate in that so that's why we see that normally you have shastra shastra is a word used for scripture but in india all the different sciences sciences i mean including arts including archery they were all called as shastra so you'll have and vidya so they are all shastras they are all vidya and you will see that even in something like shooting an arrow shastra will come in vidya will come in higher worlds will come in invocations mantra is coming where do you you can't imagine that you know you are going to kill and you are invoking the divine presence and you are actually activating technology which is you know super modern technology but with the help of mantra and even when you don't know you can still make it something very uh, you know this interweaving of the different worlds with the material there are two very interesting stories one is when karna shoots an arrow at arjun so he has made a promise with takshak takshak wants to kill arjun when the time comes so takshak comes and he calls him and he comes and sits on karna's arrow now this is not a technically known weapon because nobody does this normally <laughs> so when he shoots the arrow what happens normally you shoot an arrow and a good warrior knows its profile so he shoots his mind has calculated this arrow is coming from there and you will shoot now because this takshak snake the the spirit of the snake is sitting with all its poison it doesn't move in a normal way it just goes swings like a snake and before arjun can read what it is it's a fatal bite or fatal hit all the poison is there shri krishna realizes and he uh, puts the whole chariot down so you see uh, other world has come in there is another very interesting story where arjun is fighting one of the kingdoms during uh, the rajasuya given expansion of kingdoms you see when empires were built it was not like you know uh, the blind conquest where you go you destroy it was a yagya so yagya means that whatever you find you have to share it yagya you have to sanctify it you have to ennoble it so annexing a kingdom was not that loot and plunder you have to turn it into a yagya means now you take care of the subjects and in a better way you have to refine ennoble and uplift so there was ashwamedha yagya there was rajasu yagya so arjuna goes and he has to fight one of the kingdoms where the prince says that i am not going to give up and uh, his mother says yes good because though it is imminent death 
fighting Arjuna, but okay, you fight. His name is Praveer. So he sits and he fights. And somehow Arjuna is not able to handle this. He tries everything, but he cannot, uh, you know, kill this man. Why? Because his mother is praying to the divine and Praveer himself is a Krishna Bhakt. Now you see how there is a weaving of different dimensions. You won't find these stories anywhere. Maybe some ancient Greek myths you will see something of this kind but very remotely. You have the sword given to Perseus by Athene or in, in Homer's Odyssey. You will find Iliad some of these stories. But they are all gone. In modern, the religions which came subsequently, the connection is lost. So, Arjuna says, how, how, what is happening? So he says, you can't kill him. Why? Because he is a Krishna Bhakt. <laughs> I am sitting on your chariot but he loves me. And his mother is praying, so what do I do? Now one of the two has to go. Arjuna also can't be killed. He just his very skills are of that kind and Krishna is there. Then Sri Krishna says, Okay, now you shoot an arrow. And as he shoots the arrow, Sri Krishna sits on the arrowhead. And Praveer recognizes it. He does he says, That's why I had come. Because if I die like this, I gain liberation. Now, if you read this story, it's you don't realize whether it's actually a fight taking place, whether it's a game that is happening, or it's a play of the Leela, or it's a tapasya, sadhana, everything is interwoven in it. In something as gory and dangerous as a, uh, you know, fight to kill. So compare it with all these things that you read in the past, like gladiators and all this kind of... Then you realize that how this culture had interwoven spirituality into every aspect of life. So he says, all beings are to the Indian mind portions of the divine, evolving souls and sure of an eventual salvation and release into the spirit. So this is another very interesting aspect that not only some people who have a fixed belief in a certain religion will get released. All. Why? Because they are part of an evolutionary journey. But Indian thought distinguished between three types of evolutionary souls because they evolve through three stages. In actual practical life, you have to make a distinction. So in Tantra, there is a very interesting distinction. It is between Pashu, Veer and Dev. Dev. So there are three bhavas through which you can approach the divine. So one is Pashuvat. So that's how you, have, you see that when you have that kind of crude mind, which uh, brute kind of mindset, almost to the extent of being, you know, um, completely in a state of tamas, then whom do you pray? You pray to Pashupati. That's the whole secret. You pray to Shiva as Pashupati. So he is the lord of the animal herd. And then when you develop, you have the Veer Bhav, that is the heroic soul in man. Then you can take to any of these you know, great gods where you see this, you know, you can pray to Shiva, you can pray to Vishnu and you have that Veer Bhav where like, like a human being you have the worship where you have to master yourself and conquer yourself. So the same Shiva who comes as Pashupati, he changes his form. He is a yogi, tapasvi. You have to engage in self-mastery. And then there is the Deva Bhav. Deva Bhav means now out of tamas and rajas, you have climbed into sattva. So you are already a fairly refined person. Now you are ready actually for the spiritual life. So he comes as Gopala. So he plays with you, 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 have, you develop that bhakti and uh, you know the same who uh, expressed, uh, came to us as Pashupati, now he comes as Gopal. 
the leader of the cows, the cowherd's boy, who plays with us. He plays the flute, and you just follow him blindly, and you arrive. So this was the gradation, basically. Uh, tamasic person rajasic person and sattvic person and the gita makes a still further distinction uh, distinction between a rajo tamasic person rajasic person but gravitating towards tamas which is asuric kind of humanity and a rajo sattvic person which is climbing upwards so this was the way they understood humanity and different gradations and for different gradations there were different kinds of approaches which were permitted as part of the whole journey in tantra you see that it went to even further it was a bold attempt premature attempt but you see if you go to a temple in ujjain they actually offer alcohol to the god and bhairav you know he is down and you will see cobras dancing on the steps so i have been there and they they will offer uh drinks to bhairav and then you are supposed to take it as prasad i said please excuse me <laughs> i am done with all this this prasad i don't want <laughs> so but nearby you will have a kind of tantric pit where there are tantrics who even eat the dead flesh what do you do with that now you see any approach and every approach which led you toward that now why do they do it people don't understand you know what is the reason logic behind it logic is very interesting logic is simply that you know behind every contact of the world there is the divine hidden but we can't discover because we have ragadvesh likes dislikes and jugupsa jugupsa means shrinking from certain aspects of life now when you let go of that shrinking and you have the seeking it's not let go of the shrinking like an animal and you have the seeking then behind everything which is an appearance you will discover so in tantra sadhana of the left hand kind you are supposed to master all shrinkings and one of them is that extreme is you know dead person's flesh i mean is not like a chop and <laughs> make a meal out of it but something shri ramakrishna paramans just took a little vista he said i can't do that so or some people taste something of the human element usually it is blood or sweat or because these are things which are so to that extent it has gone which is just unimaginable and this was i mean uh, there are very interesting stories about it that people have you know practiced these kind of rituals but this not mainstream but yet it has been allowed just because it is part of human activity shrinking and you see in the isha upanishad there is a very interesting description of the realized person it is who is the person who sees the one self everywhere what is his sign so one of them is that he doesn't have moha and shoka he doesn't have moha delusion about who he is he knows who he is he doesn't have grief and the third is tato na vijugupsate he shrinks from nothing wherever he is he is able to remain in that state of freedom his freedom is unconditional and independent of every state so it has explored all the various dimensions of course in ways so which may appear crude but there are crude people so they so this what i was mentioning just now one crude ill formed still outward still vitally and physically minded can be led only by devices suited to its ignorance it's like in asur and for that there is a path appropriate to that another more developed and capable of a much stronger and deeper psycho spiritual experience 
offers a riper make of manhood gifted with a more conscious intelligence a larger vital or aesthetic opening a stronger ethical power of the nature this is the hero the hero warrior a third the ripest and most developed of all is ready for the spiritual heights fit to receive or to climb towards the loftiest ultimate truth of god and of its own being and to tread the summits of divine experience so this is the uh, really a ripe soul and by an inner aspiration that's why there is a bahya puja when one is not very developed you need something external as a representation then there is a manasik puja where you have the image of the divine or the god whom you adore in your mind and then there is a adhyatmik puja where your life becomes a worship now when you say my life is a worship my life is a prayer to the divine it's a completely an inner process so and there your conception of divine also becomes very vast he is the one who is present in all things all beings that's why the mother says in integral yoga you have to start with an integral conception of the divine there in volume 8 very first uh, uh, question and something very beautiful powerful very eye opening and then he speaks about the tantric distinction between the animal man the hero man and the divine man pashu veer dev so this is how uh, hinduism grew developed itself but then these things are sometimes too subtle too profound uh, if you read the vedic lore the vedic literature uh, vedas four vedas the upanishads 12 main upanishads culled out from there the brahmanas the aranyaks they are not easy to uh, one is read and connect with you know your intellectual mind can try to stretch out but it's not easy for everyone so they knew the need of every level of humanity for the masses there should be something for the masses they cannot be deprived so for the masses we had itihas the same truth but given in the mahabharata and the ramayana same truth human soul journey epic climb where forces of good and evil forces of progress and retrogression gods and the titans clash they are clashing inwardly the vedas speak about it they describe all the four uh, valas and panis and vritras they steal the cow and put it in the subconscious caves you can't understand but here when you see actually that there is a demonic powers and energies and there are energies of self aggrandizement ambition lust greed so they are symbolized in a particular character and then there are energies which are turned towards godward and these are human characters in mahabharata they are all human characters the beauty of the difference between mahabharata and ramayana is ramayana you can almost see it that this is humanly superhuman this is demonically superhuman it's it's very obvious it's scheme is very simple there is ram there is ravana there is ayodhya kingdom where generally people are very nice and there is that kingdom um in in lanka where except for bibhishan all are you know non vegetarians kumkaran if you see the description 52 yards so you can understand that these are not normal human characters but of a superhuman demonic type but if you read the mahabharata where do you place people like karna where do you place people like bhishma dron even for that matter duryodhan because he is an ambitious guy but at the same time this ambitious man prince actually is also veer he wants to fight 
he doesn't want his his mama shakuni tries to you know entangle him into all kinds of thing but he wants to fight he doesn't shrink from battle so there is even in him something which is good so when you read the mahabharata it is far more complex because the characters are human and semi human divine elements are brought in but as subordinate in ramayan it is too obvious so in that sense ramayan has a much more larger appeal but when the mind becomes more uh, intellectual more subtle then mahabharata has appeal see this is the difference when you have a very simple heart you connect with ram ram saman prabhu nahi kahu and ravan very obviously you know that ten headed ravan ravan must you know <laughs> you may convince that he was uh, you know he had read the vedas but you know that this fellow is <laughs> uh, he is you know cheated mata sita and so it it has a much larger vaster appeal that's why you will see for ramayana there are many kathakas and rhapsodies there are many plays natyas various places ramayana is enacted not only in india in thailand in java in bali own version of ramayana you won't find that so much in mahabharata because mahabharata structure is much more intellectual uh, it sets you to think is karna really good or a bad guy the lines are very thin subtle and you have to really get deeper to understand that what was wrong so it leaves you with certain questions which make you think of in a certain sense so shrivindo described these two epics very beautifully the mahabharata and ramayana and uh, and shrivindo says very clearly um, it is known about mahabharata and shrivindo says rightly so one it is known as the fifth veda and second it has been told that what is not there in this bharata is not there in the world and shivinda says yes it is true because the entire cosmos this cosmology theology there is the play of forces there are human character there is the human journey the epic of the soul there is the divine avatar all the elements are there in mahabharata and both are woven around a real event but then the real event is there but many things have been added up to weave a beautiful story so he says the mahabharata and ramayana are itihasas of this kind on a large scale and with a massive purpose the poets who wrote and those who added to these great bodies of poetic writing did not intend merely to tell an ancient tale in a beautiful or noble manner or even to fashion a poem pregnant with much richness of interest and meaning though they did both these things with a high success they wrote with a sense of their function as architects and sculptors of life so that's how we all know many of us have grown in the tradition of ramayana and mahabharata we just imbibed the character of arjun after that you could tell this hero is your idol it cannot be a person who has read the ramayana and mahabharata will laugh if you tell oh this hero is like you know you don't you cannot idolize a film hero you cannot idolize a cricketer because your idol is fixed now it is arjuna or rama or some such <laughs> you grew up in that i mean i have grown up and i'm sure many of us have grown up like that so how they were actually sculptors of life unknowingly when valmiki and vyas must have been there but they were sculpturing our own souls so this is something amazing and for all times to come 
they did both with high success they were sculptors of life creative exponents fashioners of significant significant forms of the national thought and religion and ethics and culture so national thought was woven around rama and krishna you see these were the two main ideals so whenever you know you had to deal with uh, issues of international issues or within the nation how to deal with the law and complex situations so you fall back upon you know this was told in mahabharata this is how krishna handled the situation <laughs> this is how rama managed it so you go back to ramayana and mahabharata and you draw the inspiration and of course there is an insight because it's not written like a do's and don'ts but it gives you enough insight to act upon that so they molded the national character a profound stress of thought on life a large and vital view of religion and society a certain strain of philosophic idea runs through these poems and i must say that you know this is something unique nowhere in the world nowhere in no religion you will find this kind of a through the narrative of two stories that an entire spiritual life living has been given to us in this way it is something really amazing and i can only understand that you know of course shobindu gave now savitri but savitri of a very different genre and very different um, level so and of course shobindu includes that you know whether in original sanskrit or rewritten in the original tongues brought to the masses by kathakas rhapsodists reciters and exegetes became became and remained one of the chief instruments of popular education and culture molded the thought character aesthetic and religious mind of the people and gave even to the illiterate some sufficient tincture of philosophy ethics social and political ideas aesthetic emotion poetry fiction and romance even to the most illiterate it gave that idea what really you know philosophy is what ethics is what romance is what human relations are that's why i often say that you know uh, socialism we have in india we don't have to follow another model look at life of rama you will understand socialism in the deepest sense you want to understand democracy you look at the life of shri krishna and you will understand you know what democracy is so the mahabharata especially is not only the story of the bharatas the epic of an early event it is said popularly of it and with a certain measure of truth that whatever is in india is in the mahabharata so i used to tell my students in psychology when they wanted to know a book to read one book i said if you want to read one book to understand all about human psychology read the mahabharata and i am saying this in real earnest and i'll quote what shurbinder has one place said if you have not read the mahabharata actually you know you have not understood india and what indianness is so <laughs> i mean of course i read it as a child and then several stories you read and reread it's something amazing and now look at his description the whole poem mahabharata has been built like a vast national temple sheer beauty of expression unrolling slowly its immense and complex idea from chamber to chamber so you have the story of king bharat it starts with a fantastic idea what is that idea it 
actually it literally shatters your preconceived notions about life here is a woman who never married and just on a promise the prince must reclaim the throne it starts with a woman and her fire and her strength who must go back to the king and remind him that look here he is your son just imagine it starts in a very grand way then you have the story of shantanu you have ganga and you know bhishm coming in the father who goes through despondency each of which can become a unique chapter so chamber to chamber so there there are stories within stories then you have the story of these three uh, you know along with bhishm vichitravirya and the other chitrangad and then you have the story of these three uh, Pandu, Dhritarashtra and Vidur coming in. And then it doesn't end there. In Mahabharata particularly, you have so many sub-stories which are woven. Savitri's story is there. When they are going into the uh, forest, then you have uh, so many one parv, so many stories which emerge there. So it is like, as he said, national temple where you are going from one chamber to another. So, but he continues... crowded with significant groups and sculptures and inscriptions when you look at uh, just the life of even king shantanu who later on dies almost uh, a weak man depressed and yet when you look at his life you wonder my god who was this great legendary king you read about bharat you don't know that much later arjuna is going to come you just marvel at this you know one of the early images i remember which inspired me about king bharat that he was known to have fought with a lion bare handed and tame him now this you know <laughs> it's a different kind of a shorey uh, of a different thing altogether the grouped figures carved in divine or semi divine proportions a humanly aggrandized and half uplifted to superhumanity a humanity aggrandized and half uplifted to superhumanity who could be that person who will promise for his father's sorrow he says i'll never marry why because otherwise uh, he wants to marry someone whose demand is that their progeny must become the child and ex, uh, you know go to the throne but if bhishma is there he can't so he says that i'll never marry and i will never be the king now when you look at it he is human but he is semi human what a proportion aggrandized look at karna even i am talking of the faulty ones if you come to yudhishthir i mean he goes to what extent of speaking truth this is not human it is you know even there is a war situation where they will be lost defeated krishna is suggesting him but no his heart is shrinking from that his mind is shrinking from that look at arjuna so capable he can use all these celestial weapons he has acquired by his tapasya but he won't use them so what kind of characters are these i mean and they are all of human and super lifted to superhumanity and yet always true to the human motive and idea and feeling the strain of the real constantly raised by the tones of the ideal this what you see in mahabharata so mahabharata appeals more to the intellectual mind which has grown very complex and it plays with complex ideas subtle things where ramayana is very direct and simple you have basically on one side rama with you know the filial love and everything on the other side 
Ravana. So there are no shades in between and it's very easy to handle and navigate and very beautiful, very aesthetic, very sensitively written. The life of this world amply portrayed but subjected to the conscious influence and presence of the powers of the worlds behind it and the whole unified by the long embodied procession of a constant idea working out in the wide steps of the poetic story. So you are this whole like a temple but there is a common thread which is running through the story and that's a grand narrative. So this about what is the motive when you run through this entire story, Mahabharata and Ramayana? You have one word which constantly comes, which is the central thought of Indian entire understanding. It is Dharma. If you understand Dharma, you understand India. And Dharma is not at all religion. And that's why when people say Hinduism is a way of life any which way, it is not any which way. You are given, it's a very liberal way of life. But there is only one thing which you are expected to consider and that is dharma. But what is dharma? It is something very subtle. It is within you. So you have to discover it. So there are different kinds of dharmas for different kinds of humanity, for different conditions, for different states, for different situations. There is not one do's and set of do's and don'ts for everyone. So dharma is the common theme you see through Ramayana and you see through Mahabharata. All the different shades of conflict that a man experiences when he is confronted with the challenge of life vis-a-vis the dharma that he has to follow. As I said, Bhishma, Bhishma has to face another kind of dharmic dilemmas. Should he stay with what he knows to be truth or with his promise? To fulfill your promise is a dharma. So he has promised to bind to the throne. But then there is another aspect of it and then the truth is with the Pandavas. So should he be this side or that side? So everywhere you will see these dilemmas which are not simple and ethical. They are very complex and they belong to what is known as dharma. Same way with Rama kills Bali. So Bali asks him, you are supposed to be practicing dharma. But why have you killed me like this? It is a very beautiful... I have several times spoken about it, so I won't repeat that. Uh, Rama explains what really is dharma. So dharma is the key note you will find. The leading motive is the Indian idea of the dharma. And what is dharma? Here the Vedic notion of the struggle between the godheads of truth and light and unity and the powers of darkness and division and falsehood is brought out from the spiritual and religious and internal into the outer intellectual, ethical and vital plane. So here it takes the story of a double form and the ethical ideals of the Indian dharma and others who are embodiments of asuric egoism and self-will and misuse of the dharma. So essentially everything that springs from the ego and selfish interest which is there to create division and with the children of division are hatred, jealousies, the will to dominate and crush and finish. All these are a dharma. Why? What is the foundation of dharma is unity. But what kind of unity? Not through uniformity but a manifold unity. So the moment we understand that life is all about all inclusiveness but knowing the different shades, knowing the different levels, stages, all these things, then we are on the right track. But whatever leads to division, whatever leads to, um, as the mother says, disunity, uh, hatred, jealousies, All these are adharmas. Why? Because it is leading to 
a state of constant friction and division and disharmony. Whereas all that leads to truth, unity, growth of light, harmony, peace, beauty is dharma. So this is how. That's why you'll never find that in all these uh, wars that are described in Indian, the Mahabharata and Ramayana, that when they annexed a kingdom, they destroyed it. They destroyed the sculpture. The only place you find is Hanuman, which is obviously a very symbolic story. You can't burn gold like that. But very clearly symbolic. Otherwise, and he is known to be, have the nature of Kapi. But otherwise, even when Rama annexes the kingdom, he throws Vibhishna as the king. He doesn't say, okay, I am annexing the kingdom and I am the king. He walks away from there. In Kishkindha, after killing Bali, he throws Vali as he throws Sugriv as king. So these stories, when you know people who have been brought up in these stories, they understand that sometimes you have to fight. But this fight doesn't mean that you are doing it to now loot, plunder, and take and possess what you have gained. No, it has to be also ennobled. It is also yagya. So. This all this we see here through, and the Ramayana is a work of the same essential kind as the Mahabharata. It differs only by a great, greater simplicity of plan, a more delicate ideal temperament, and a finer glow of poetic warmth and color. See how he describes. So there is less of the philosophic, more of the purely poetic mind, more of the artist, less of the builder, and you can see that it's like a painting. Ramayana is like a painting. Mahavarata is like a temple built by, you know, it's like an architecture, and the style is also very different. Original Valmiki is, uh, it's like terse, it's powerful, it's it's like bold strokes, whereas in Ramayana it's much more fluid. It's like an artist giving shades and colors to every emotion, so the two complement each other very beautifully, and he describes it and. Then in this, uh, so toward the end of Ramayana, he says, The work of Valmiki has been an agent of almost incalculable power in the moulding of the cultural mind of India. It has presented to it to be loved and imitated in figures like Rama and Sita, made so divinely and with such a revelation of reality as to become objects of enduring cult and worship. So the ideal of every woman was Sita and Savitri. Whether you can live it or not, but ideal was there. It was not Marilyn Monroe. So you have to, you know, uh, it cannot be any of these modern heroines because it's there in the Indian thought. You may not be able to live it, but you know that is the ideal. So you know you are deviating from the ideal. So something is there in the Indian thought and feeling that this is not right. Same the ideal is like Rama. And every time you deviate, you know that Ravana is not the way, that you forcibly... Uh, Force yourself on someone and you say that just because I love, I have the right over you to possess you. So all these things were taught in this way. Um, Lakshman, Bharat, Hanuman, the living human image of its ethical ideals, it has fashioned much of what is best and sweetest in the national character. And it has evoked and fixed in it those finer and exquisite yet firm soul tones and that more delicate humanity 
of temperament which are a more valuable thing than the formal outsides of virtue and conduct what are the formal outsides of virtue and conduct when you step you from a car you open the door from this side or that side and when you greet in certain ways you see how you propose you have to get on the knees pick up a ring and propose is a very formal huh? outer conduct you have to celebrate a valentine day no that's not required very often it only leads to a kind of falsehood because you you do that and the next day but when you know that your love should be like sita or radha and many of these legendary characters even shakuntala the fiery kind dropti then these characters are it doesn't matter on one particular valentine day whether you wished happy valentine day and went out for a party or not it's irrelevant but this is how your ethical mind should be molded so this was the whole way that they molded the human types within india so he says once more i will read it because it is important those finer and exquisite yet firm soul tones soul tones compassion kindness courage sacrifice bravery these are the soul tones gratitude these are tones of the soul which are inward your action should be based on these soul tones then outwardly so outward thing is very simple oh i am so 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 grateful to you but deep inside you are basically trying to please the person and you know <laughs> you are marketing yourself that's not how indian mind operates when it feels grateful it can even give its life for that when it is called to battle it faces battle with courage and without fear without flinching from danger but when it forgives it forgives readily this is these are the soul tones in it those finer and exquisite yet firm soul tones and that more delicate humanity of temperament which are a more valuable thing than the formal outsides of virtue and conduct you don't know when rama met how did he greet did he do namaste or did he shake hands no that's not important but deep inside rama is always you image rama is gentle smiling calm but when challenged he is the very soul of courage that's how shri krishna declares among those who are courageous valor i am rama see that is how inwardly it should be the rest will come automatically this is a small little passage in that book now we are coming toward the end shobinder describes about indian architecture temples for instance nataraj is a fascinating figure nataraj weaves calm immobility with rapturous dance see it is shiva he is associated with calm immobile spirit trans held but when he dances and see the pose if you look at carefully the pose of nataraj it's a difficult pose just try doing your even your hand like that and you know what is this why this pose just practicing that <laughs> mudra is not easy on one leg when you are standing and with the other leg you know the reason is that it indicate that there is a rapturous and ecstatic dance yet there is a just measure it's not a random chaotic dance so even in tandav there is a measure of the dance which you see in the image of nataraj the cosmic dancer 
So it is something fascinating the way these uh, architectures have been and images. So he says Indian sacred architecture of whatever date, style or dedication goes back to something timelessly ancient and now outside India almost wholly lost. It used to be there in some other places you still see an effort like Angkor Wat temple if you go in nearby Cambodia and there are places which in ancient times some places uh, it must have been there but it has been lost elsewhere. Something which belongs to the past and yet it goes forward to though this the rationalistic mind will not easily admit. It is still a thing to the future. I felt it when I went to Madurai temple. You may not have kept it so clean as we expected but the different doors through which you are going and she is interestingly called Meenakshi. It is about her eyes, you know, which are watching you everywhere and from every side. Each temple, go to the thousand pillared temple of Rameshwaram. Shubhinda has used this expression in Savitri, the thousand pillared temple of God by the sea. Sea is infinite. Thousand pillar temples is Sahasrar. Beyond it, there is utter infinity. So you have this, you know, and so many temples built like that. The steps, some of them are on high hilltop mountains. Because indicative of the journey that you have to undertake. Amarnath cave, you have to bend over and go. Why? Because you have to be in a state of utter humility. No companions, you go alone. You can't hold hands and go there. Then you find the Amarnath, the Lord of Immortality. So every place will have a significance and a symbol. So he says it still belongs to the past, to something which will return upon us and is already beginning to return, something which belongs to the future. So I connect this recent, people often ask why is Mahakal temple being rebuilt and Ayutthaya? It is something very important. Not just to reclaim our past, but it is something to the future. And it's very interesting when you look at the way Mahakal temple has been recently rebuilt. This, see, look at what should be saying. It is, it is going to come in the future. These things will still come. Now, it, the real meaning, all the different aspects of Shiva have been brought together. He is the one who is drinking poison, but he is the one when he goes to wed Parvati. That scene is also depicted. You see, there are different aspects which come under one roof. An Indian temple to whatever Godhead it may be built is in its inmost reality an altar raised to the divine self a house of the cosmic spirit, an appeal and aspiration to the infinite. As that, now when you see all these leela of Shiva or Krishna, you see every aspect of life and how every aspect can be tuned into the infinite. That's what is there in the leelas. In life, when poison comes in your share, it can come from Shiv leela, you understand. Sometimes, everybody is having nice, nice things. But in your share comes poison. What do you do? You don't run away from it. You drink it as part of the yagya, as prasad. That makes Shiva who he is. The greatest of the great. So this is how you understand it immediately. In that whole story of Devasur, Sagar Mantan, so many interesting things are there. And so Shubhindra describes and it's endless and very beautiful, must read. And at the end he says that then the decline came and during the decline we see uh, two significant traditions 
Uh, one was um, too significant as like a last outburst of the Indian creative energy. One was the building of the Maratha Empire by Shivaji under the inspiration of Ramdas. But then it failed because it was too much rooted in the local. Even today you see Marathi manuscripts rooted in the local. She was the mother India but mother of you know the way the Maratha empire the, you know conceived her. But very powerful. It is rooted in the Indian tradition. Hindu thought, Sanatan Dharma. But the Peshwas could not hold that. And therefore it declined. And the second was Sikh um, which was another branching out from the Indian tradition but it was a, one of the early attempts to create a spiritualized society but in the true sense of the word so even till today you see some of these things like langar, guru ka langar so you know you go there they don't ask you anything you just go have food nicely and come out there are some very beautiful things but then it was it lagged a kind of a life force which can embrace many aspects so again it became limited into a certain kind of cult and formula. Again, uh, some of its builders conceived of a Khalsa. Khalsa was a very beautiful word, you know. Khalish, pure, Sikh, the true disciple. But then it could not embrace the many-sided living unity. And therefore it, this attempt failed. It was premature. But it was the last during the decline. So it still carried the flame to quite an extent. And then Shrivindu says that then the night came. But he gives us beautiful. So the Sikh Khalsa on the other hand was an astonishingly original and novel creation. And its face was turned not to the past but the future. So it tried to unify even Islam and Vedanta. You see when you look at it. Apart and singular in the theocratic head and democratic soul and structure, its profound spiritual beginning, its first attempt to combine the deepest elements of Islam and Vedanta, it was a premature drive towards an entrance into the third or spiritual stage of human society. But it could not create between the spirit and the external life the transmitting medium of a rich creative thought and culture. That was missing. That you find in ancient India. And thus hampered and deficient, it began and ended within narrow local limits. Achieved intensity, but no power of expansion. The conditions were not then in existence that could have made possible a successful endeavor. Afterwards came the night and a temporary end of all political initiative and creation. The lifeless attempt of the last generation to imitate and reproduce with a servile fidelity the ideals and forms of the West has been no true indications of the political mind and genius of the Indian people. But again, amid all the mist of confusion, there is still the possibility of a new twilight. I've seen Savitri have two twilights, twilight of the gods, twilight of the earthly real. So new to twilight, not of an evening, but a morning yoga sandhya. And he closes with this powerful sentence, I'll read and then we'll stop. It, the book reads like a wonderful story. Of course, as I said, not everything that Sri said there, for instance in Ramayana and Mahabharata, not everything is there in 
this uh, book but whatever is there is enough to give us a deep broad and penetrating high vast all embracing understanding of what really hindu thought is so he closes with this india of the ages is not dead nor has she spoken her last creative word she lives and has still something to do for herself and the human peoples and that which must seek now to awake is not an anglicized oriental people docile pupil of the west and doomed to repeat the cycle of the occident's success and failure but still the ancient immemorable shakti recovering her deepest self lifting her head higher towards the supreme source of light and strength and turning to discover the complete meaning and vaster form of her dharma namaste